Hey everybody, this is So Heidi, and this is part two of a two-part interview I did with fashion designer Rochelle Behrens, who runs The Shirt. You can find her at the-shirt.com. If you haven't listened to part one of the interview, I suggest you check that out. In part two, we go through audience questions, and Rochelle talks about how you don't have to be big in fashion to make it big in fashion. There's a little bit of smoke and mirrors in this industry as well, and nobody needs to know how small your business is, but you can be the big fashion designer that shows up at her big trunk show. Like, that's okay. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy. This question comes in from Heather, and Heather wants to know, um, how did she get funding for her brand? So this is something I actually hear people ask about a lot. How much does it start to get going? Should I do a Kickstarter? Um, and and so if you wouldn't mind just talking a little bit about some strategies or, or some things you did that worked um, to kind of get some of that initial capital you needed. You mentioned a lot throughout the whole interview, capital, capital, capital. And um, if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about that, yeah. that'd be great. Unfortunately, you do need capital to make it in this business. Um, I've really bootstrapped it for many years and probably at the expense of my growing in the in a big way. Um, I, I went out for a little bit and tried to get some venture capital funding and it just wasn't for me. I mean, I went on pitches and... I, you know, I got a lot of interest and I just, ultimately I sort of shied away from it. I wasn't sure I wanted to, you know, the question is, do you give up control? I guess a hundred percent of very little is very little. So do you want to take a smaller percentage of something bigger? Probably. Um, but then you're sort of beholden to a lot of people and that wasn't necessarily how I wanted to grow the brand. So how you get your capital really informs a lot of what you can do with your business. Starting a business, as I mentioned earlier, online is capital intensive, because, not because the overhead is high. In other words, you know, spending however much it is per month, $30, $40 to get a website going is, is not that expensive. You know, at this point, getting a developer to do a rudimentary site, or there are so many companies now that you can design your own basic site. It's not that expensive. What is expensive is buying the product and having it in your warehouse or in your apartment and shipping it. And that's the costly part. So of course, doing your research and figuring out how you can produce min the minimum amount of volume that you need at the lowest amount of cost is where I would spend my time. But in order to buy that initial product, you do need to find money from somewhere. And that can be anywhere from... Uh, a line of credit, a small business loan, a loan from your parents, a round from family and friends, you know, a little bit of savings from you, a place like Kickstarter, any one of these, you know, peer evaluated sites, I think is a great way to do it. You just have to be able to deliver. And that's, I think, the scary part for someone that maybe has never built product before because there's so much that can go wrong in building product. Um, I think fortunately those communities are pretty understanding if product is shipped late. Um, but you still, you know, you've collected someone's money, you have to deliver on it. And that's like a, that's kind of scary. So having money is critical. Um, the question is how much, if you want to raise a lot of money, even better, you can hire the right people. You can spend money on customer acquisition. Um, 
I would say, firstly, the most important thing before you even begin thinking about your customer is making sure that the product is good and right. Don't, um, I wouldn't, you know, cut corners on developing product because if you just decide, okay, it's good enough and you go into production, you're stuck with a lot of crap that won't sell. You've just blown like a lot of money on something that you can't liquidate easily. So investing in the product and making sure the product is king, which I should have said earlier, is like so critical to having a business that functions. Even before you think about the consumer, the product, if the product is good and if you have one product, that sometimes is all you need before expanding. I will also say that I, I pretty early on, when I first launched, I had one shirt in like 10 colors and I did really, really well the first year. After that, I decided to, I had some confidence. I decided to expand. I expanded my SKU count majorly and it came back to bite me because the product, it was, I had too many SKUs. I couldn't buy with any depth. It was very shallow because I could only buy a couple of each style because I needed to find the money to be able to do it. So the question is, once you have a little bit of money or if you have the promise of some money, how do you actually stretch it? For me, when we launched on Oprah, I had no idea what to expect from it. And I realized it's a it's like a crazy experience how many people get on Oprah. So I realize that what I'm saying isn't exactly representative of everyone's experience, but still everyone can get, you know, a big hit, a big story, end up on a on a show, get on Shark Tank, you know, whatever it is and and find that they are going to be selling a lot of product before they even know how they're going to fund it. And that was sort of what happened in my case. I say I went from zero to Oprah in a matter of five weeks when I when I found out. And I wasn't sure what to expect from it. Am I going to sell 1,000 units, 10,000 units, 100,000 units? I don't know. There's no precedent for this. No one you know, wrote the book on how many, pro- product, how many units you need to buy if you're on Oprah. And beyond that, there was a question of, okay, well, so if I go ahead and buy all this product, what happens if the show doesn't air that day because there's some you know, natural disaster and the show's preempted and here I'm stuck with all this product? So what I did was I hedged a little bit, which is I actually waited until the show aired and put in the basically like confirm the orders afterward and was able to pay for it because I knew I had money coming in against it. So I was very risk averse in that sense of not outlaying a large amount of money that I didn't have anyway for a product that I wasn't sure I was going to sell. So I would say securing sales of some sort, you know, even before you go out and spend a lot of money is helpful, knowing that you actually have a market for it before you really invest. You're gonna have to put in a little bit of money to figure out who that market is and if your product is working and to test it. But once you know that, I would say work on really getting a lot of sales before you invest in a lot of product. because the worst thing is to be sitting on a lot of product that you borrowed all this money from. Um, I found most people in my position at the early stages borrowed from or did a round with friends and family. They just, if you're going to pitch your product, you might as well start as uncomfortable as it is pitching it with people that really care about you. Um, but, uh, you know, the rest I think is just boots, you know, is figuring out how to do things on the, on the cheap, yeah. the, the costs of, of materials and of contract, you know, of, pa- of patterns and samples can really get away from you. So I think just really, really monitoring that closely is, 
is really helpful in the beginning. Yeah, I love how smart you were about going into the Oprah thing. I mean, that's a really intense moment. And you, like you said, you have no idea what the outcome is going to be. And so um, I do want to ask a couple questions about that. Oh, I have like a couple. So I think probably three. Um, one, I just want to clarify. You spent a lot of time doing the R&D and producing the perfect shirt. Once you had that figured out, it sounds like you, quote unquote, launched it on Oprah. Is that correct? That's correct. I mean, I think, you know, the shirt is still going through iterations. Like it will sure. never be perfect. And I think, you know, I'm contradicting myself a little bit because I'm saying product is king. And it is because at the end of the day, we have a product that people love that we've built. But the product has also changed as I've learned what works. In other words, I didn't like crazy overinvest in... Uh, you know, a whole bunch of shirt patterns in the beginning because it's it's changed as I've learned that my customer actually likes things fitted or I need another, you know, I the, the product itself has evolved. And styles and trends change too, so. And the customer, I think like once you put something out there, the customer gives you feedback. So I wasn't so like strong headed that I was like, this is it. This is the product I'm going to launch forever. That's it. Like once you start putting it out there, customers start telling you what they like and don't like about it, what the fabric is they like and don't like the call, you know, the collar size, like you wouldn't believe the feedback that you get, um, on some of the products. So yeah, I think it's like design is never done. And I think what a lot of women in particular who are, you know, scared in some ways to launch them like this will, will just iterate and iterate and iterate until they have the perfect thing and it just will never even get out to market. So just like get it out there a little bit, begin doing trunk shows, begin selling a little bit, just buy a little bit of inventory and see what's working. Your friends will all buy it. (laughs) So there's a fine line between knowing when it's good enough and making it absolutely perfect. I mean, you're never going to make it absolutely perfect, like you just said, but I think it's that balance of like, okay, knowing when, you know what, yeah, we're ready anymore, we're just going to be over tweaking it. Yeah, I mean, I think as a designer, one is inherently sort of a perfectionist or is aiming toward that goal of exactly what you've conceptualized, where when the customer actually doesn't get that granularity, they don't get that level of detail. So for the customer, like at some point, it's perfect enough for them, even though it might not be for you. Yeah. And I think you have to find where that point is and then just launch the product. Okay. Even softly. Yeah. So the launch on Oprah. Yeah. I know everyone's probably dying to know, how did you get on Oprah? Like, and, what, and not just how you got on, but then I want there to be some takeaways from this. So, so for people who are just starting out, um, what can they do to maybe secure... Some type of press. I mean, that's where you said some of your strengths and expertise mm-hmm. lies. So what do you have to I offer? I just talked to everyone. You know, in the beginning, you know, I read so much about Sarah Blakely, for, who founded Spanx in the beginning. Yeah. She was like, and Tori Birch, they were like my, my style, my fashion, you know, inspirations. Um, cause they had both started their businesses a couple of years before I had, and they had done phenomenally well. And, you know, I just liked their, their rise. I remember hearing Sarah Blakely, I like was obsessed with following everything about her. So I remember her saying in interviews, keep your product a secret. Don't tell anyone because everyone's going to tell you what's wrong with it. And I had a very, it's like the only thing I will disagree with Sarah Blakely on. I had a very different experience, which is even while I was developing the product, and even though I had a proprietary, you know, I have a patent on it, so technically there should be something secretive about it, I told everyone about it because I thought 
if I tell everyone, someone can help me. Like, the number of people, you know, sheer volume that I talk to, someone is going to have an idea of how to help me. And that is honestly how I got started. I mean, I just talked to everyone about what I was doing. It obviously is intriguing to people, especially in a place like Washington, which is so buttoned up or buttoned down, <laughs> um, pun intended, that, uh, that something like fashion, you know, was intriguing to them. So it was an easy thing to talk about. But that's basically how I have networked my way into opportunities, um, including the Oprah experience. You know, I was talking to someone at a cocktail party, a friend's engagement party, who knew someone who knew someone who knew someone. And, you know, I was able to be connected. And that's how I got connected to the Oprah show. Now, from there, the product has to sing, right? The Oprah show is, Oprah Winfrey show is obviously extremely selective. So the product spoke to her audience. I had to know that what I was sending them was something that they would like. And I was right. Same thing with, um, you know, sort of one thing begot another. I ended up having a trunk show in my apartment when I was first starting and sent the invitation as far and wide as I could, as I could. And a reporter was on the invite list or someone who was a friend of a reporter and passed it along to her and then she called me. It turns out it was an NPR reporter. So there was a story on NPR about me. And then the Today Show heard the story on NPR and they called me. So like one thing, I mean, I realize I've had a streak of lucky breaks, but it's not really, you know, I put myself in a position where I was talking to enough people that it was getting to the right places. And I think if your story is interesting enough, if your product is delightful enough, the press follows. Um, of course, you have to be proactive about it and pitch and you can hire, you know, if you start to get a little bit of money, hire a small PR, you know, team or person who has the relationships to land, you know, a big story for you. But press is, um, press is big. The other thing I think that you can do now with not too much money is to get to influential bloggers. Yeah. Um, they're, they sell a lot of product, you know, just sell them, send them product. You don't have to pay them. Some, some of them, you know, the big ones need to be paid, but if you just send them product, it can get a lot of places. Yeah. So it sounds like you've gotten most of your press from just networking and then finding someone who knows someone who knows someone and then taking that and following up as you need. Um, have you done much like just cold calling or yeah, or a little like bit, that? a little bit of pitching. Um, it, for instance, I was taking my the shirts to you know we did like a road trip. I, I hired an independent salesperson and I had a team and they went on a road trip to Richmond and then you know through the South. And so wherever we were, we made sure that the local glossy magazine knew that we were coming. So we pitched, you know, we found the style editor there. We would call them specifically. We'd show them the product to make sure that there was a write-up. So it was very targeted um, when we knew we were going there. And, you know, these the glossy magazines are always looking for something new to write about. Yeah, cool. And local papers. Yeah, so that's accessible. I mean, like you just said, just pick up the local magazines and see who the style editor is and then start Googling to figure out more about them and do your research. Do your research. <laughs> do your research. And then follow up. All right, this question is from Ginny, and Ginny says, Rochelle, you have a great product, but when shirt sales are down, what do you do to try to get them back up? And I love this question because, you know, obviously I, I do think a lot about sales and distribution, as, as do you and as you kind of have to when you have a fashion brand. And it's not like once you make it, things are just smooth sailing. There's ebb and flow and up and down and peaks and valleys. And so when you are in those valleys, what do you do to get out of there? Mm -hmm. 
Well, I think one is building up your mailing list um, and add everyone in your contact list and try to expand from there. And once you start getting some press, people will sign up on your website and maybe offer a discount on your website for signing up, discount off your first purchase for signing up for the website so that you can get a lot of people in the distribution list. For me, when I see, you're right, because the natural... I mean, I'm talking about sort of on a day-to-day -day basis. Fortunately, I'm at a point in the business where there is some stability. So people have found us and the ordering is regular. Um, but, you know, if I, if I notice that, you know, there's a week where things are looking down. Um, one, we don't release all of our product at once. There's a slow trickle. So I'm not beholden necessarily to the seasonal calendar. And because we do shirts, we can release them in different colors and different prints um, throughout the year. And so... I'll release a new, I'll either release or remind our customers about what is new or what is coming. Um, so I use our distribution list very sparingly. There are some brands that regularly, you know, three times a week or twice a week will send out emails to entice you to come to their site and buy. For me, I think that becomes people start ignoring it when they, when it's so regular. When they get an email on occasion, they think it's an event. And I would say that's sort of the biggest, because you know, if we're talking about purely online sales, that's the way you know, you're going to get people back to the site who haven't been there in a while and buying. The other thing I would say to supplement you know, online, there is nothing like good old fashioned interpersonal sales. In other words, Start putting together trunk shows. Have your friends host trunk shows. Find your friends in other cities and have them do trunk shows. Partner up with a sorority and have them host a trunk show. I think those in the, the opportunities to sell face-to-face -face where people can actually try the product on and meet the designer or meet someone who's friends with the designer because people are so excited to get involved in fashion is like just a good way to keep the drum beat going. You know, have a trunk show every month or every two weeks in a different location. Yeah, it'll cost you a little bit in FedExing, you know, some hangers and and some product. But I never underestimate. I mean, I think in situations where where we've held trunk shows or sold product in real life, like the conversion rate in terms of the number of people there versus the number of people buy is very high much higher than selling online. Yeah. Um, okay, I want to touch on two things. Uh, one, I, I, I'm, you said it. I knew you were going to say it, but the whole like meet the designer thing is really important and special to people. Um, and I even find that with the companies that I design for, I go to trade shows um, and I typically do presentations at sales meetings and, and sort of show the line there. But my clients always want me to stick around for the actual trade show and hang out at the booth for the first day so that I can talk to the buyers because the buyers always want to meet the designer. And this is more on like a wholesale level. Um, and I think, but I think it's the same, like direct to consumer or wholesale, the buyer, like having that face-to-face -face time with the designer, the person who actually created the product is really special for the person who's dropping the hundred bucks or a thousand bucks or 5,000 bucks to place that order. Oh yeah. yeah, especially. And I think the other thing you know, there's a, there's a little bit of smoke and mirrors in this industry as well. And nobody needs to know how small your business is. You can be the big, you know, humility is key, but you can be the big fashion designer that shows up at her big trunk show. Like that's okay to put on that, that uniform, you know, that costume for the day. Yeah. Um, because people are so excited to meet people who are living out their own dream. You know, so many people would love to just quit what they're doing and, and be a fashion designer. Yeah. Um, 
So yeah, I think I think in you know it's so old fashioned. It's like Tupperware parties, but I think <laughs> I, it's old fashioned, but it works. Yeah. And I, I just I think the like real life selling is so key. Yeah. Um, the other thing you've said that I want to kind of expand on just for a second is you the the marketing and promotion that you do to your email list is very selective. Like I loved what you said. You're like, you make it an event, you make it feel like it's something special. You know, there's some of these, let's say big box retailers for lack of a better word. Um, or that's even probably the exact appropriate word. Um, who they spam your inbox. You're getting three things a week. Everything is always on sale. Something's always happening. It's like, there's no urgency. Um, and so this idea of creating an event or something special, um, I love that. And I'm curious, have you ever done or thought about doing any kind of like limited edition prints or collaborating with some other name or I don't even know what it would be, but something to make this really special product and then it's limited edition. You're only doing so many and sort of create that um, enticing thing. Immediacy. Yeah, yeah that, that someone wants yeah, to buy. Yeah, there's a brand called Leadberry, L-E-D-B-U-R-Y. It's a men's shirt brand. They do the, I don't know if they still do it, but they for a while did like New Shirt Wednesday. I can't remember what they branded it. Like every Wednesday they would release like a limited edition shirt. And it created this idea that like you have to go back every Wednesday and there are only so many of them and like it's a hot product. So I think you can artificially sort of create this excitement around your own brand by doing that. I haven't done that though. We've thought about doing it because now I can, honestly, I, my production, I've actually gotten to the point where it's working, which is like, <laughs> took a long time. So now I can do that. And I appreciate the suggestion. In fact, I might, you know, you might coming soon to the short website. <laughs> um, and we've done one or two partnerships with other brands that don't sell the same product, but target the same customer. And that's been great. Like we've shared, we've done a cross branding, not in terms of product, but we did a cross promotion in terms of, um, we set up a photo shoot together and the founder of that company and I, you know, did a photo shoot. And then in the email that we sent out, they sent it, you know, we sent it to each other's brands basically so that their customer was learning about our product with a discount and vice versa. And that was great in terms of customer acquisition. So there are enough people starting up brands that you want to do that. Again, you have to choose those carefully and also limit the number of those that you do or else it just becomes boring. But I think those are really worthwhile. Yeah. You don't want to oversaturate things, but those opportunities to get exposure to their email list and sort of, um, I've, kind of heard the term of like cross-pollination yeah, is really beneficial exactly. to grow. Yeah. And we've done, I, you know, what other people do also, you know, they have around the holidays, there are like pop-up shops where different small brands will get together and all go in. I don't know who necessarily organizes it, but all go into a space together and they're all targeting the same customer so that, you know, the customer comes in and she can buy, you know, her fancy hipster bra set and like, you know, her cool sweater and something for her husband and her boyfriend. So there are those opportunities and they're in like every city now, yeah. I think, because it's so available. Yeah. You made a comment a few minutes ago about 
you just now have finally gotten your manufacturing under control, which considering that you've been doing this for about seven years, sounds a little bit scary to me. Um, and I would imagine some of the people listening are feel like that's probably pretty intense. Um, on that note, um, I do want you to talk a little bit about that, but um, it leads right into this question that Maggie sent in, which is, where is her design manufactured? Is she made in America competing with overseas manufacturing or having her designs made overseas? Let's start with that. There's one more follow-up question that she put, but let's start with that, talking a little okay. bit about the manufacturing. Yeah, manufacturing is just a beast. I mean, it is the hardest part of this whole business. I think finding reliable production partners is really hard when you're small. And I mentioned earlier, but it's worth repeating. You know, one of the problems with being a small independent designer is that you'll get really bad costings because the only factories will take you on will take you on with your low volume, but you're going to be paying like through the nose for it. And it's hard to scale your business when you're paying so much for your product because either you have to charge your eventual customers a lot for the product to cover your costs, which really limits your pool of customers, or you're going to not make that much money on a per unit basis because you paid so much for it and you might not make the margin that you need to to really sustain or grow your business or pay yourself. And the, so the the challenging part for a growing brand is to how you get out of that because every young independent designer like starts in that which is they're paying too much for production. And because you can't you're not buying thousands of units, you're buying a couple or 50 or 100 units and you're going to get charged for that and it's hard to go overseas for that because the overseas factories will only take high volume so you're relegated to doing it in New York which isn't a bad thing I produced in New York for many years I still do some production in New York but producing in New York is very expensive you're paying New York rent you're paying New York labor um, mostly you're paying New York rent, which we all know, <laughs> you know, is very expensive. And, um, I've never done any production in Los Angeles, though I'm beginning to explore what that's like, because I think it might be a good place. My understanding is it's less expensive and you still get the American made. For me, manufacturing in America is very important on a personal level. It is something that I did for about seven years and I have to tell you, very few customers cared. It's this shocking, there's almost a disconnect between what people theoretically want and then what actually matters to them in the product. Some people are willing to pay more for America Made. A lot of people don't care. They just want to have a quality product at a decent price. And for me, all things being equal, I would absolutely do in the United States. You can do smaller runs, you can do faster runs, you can call your factory manager up um, during normal business hours when you're working. Um, you can go to the factory if you need to go steam something or get it off the line faster. You can go there and just do it yourself. I've been known to do that. You can go pack your own boxes if you needed to get it to your customers faster. You know, in the in the factory, there's certainly a there are a lot of benefits to doing it locally in the United States. I don't know of that many places where you can do it not in Los Angeles or New York. There probably are, you know, some areas. They're popping up more and more. I mean, I know um, the other fashion community that I'm engaged in is the Denver scene, um, the Colorado scene. And there's some cut and sew manufacturers out there. 
Um, so I think, I think, you know, I don't keep as a very good pulse on it, to be honest, but I think it's growing. And, you know, there's some stuff in the Carolinas mm -hmm. still, of course, that used to be a big hub. Um, in Pennsylvania, I understand. Yeah. There and again, it's a matter of just like Googling until you find them right. and call them. Right. I've done that a little bit. I found, you know, still the, it's expensive. Any way you cut it, it's expensive to produce in the United States. And you have to determine if that, what, how that factors in your business. If you are all about American made, then price might not be a factor and your what what you value is american made for a commodity you know if you're producing something that can be easily replicated it's you know if you want to scale your business it, it's possible but i think it's hard unfortunately to do it in the states one of the problems is is that the machinery just isn't here anymore it's very expensive big machinery to be able to mass produce precision in garments sometimes and it's just not like it all moved overseas and it just didn't come back and so it, you're we're sort of stuck because it's like some people want to do in the United States but you can't even because you're not even getting the kind of quality unfortunately that you can get overseas so that is to say I've been doing production in the United States for a long time in order to really grow my business however unfortunately you have to look at doing it offshore somewhere that can be in Mexico that can be in Canada um, frankly you know take a take a look at where we have I think the factors that contribute to choosing where you want to do business vary and you have to determine what's important to you some people care very much about time zone like it's been told that I should be looking in Peru because they have Peruvian cottons and the time zone is really advantageous because if you want to get a hold of your factory which you do every day or three times a week it's much easier to call them during business hours than what I've also done, which is wake up at three in the morning every morning to check on the product because it's a 12 hour time difference and it's three o'clock in the, in the factory, you know, somewhere else across the world. So is it time zone that's important to you? Not to be underestimated. I know it sounds kind of silly. Is it, you know, look at trade agreements like NAFTA because that will help with some of the duties in terms of you know tariffs and what you have to pay to import product. Do your research if you move things offshore because it seems less expensive, it might be just as expensive as producing in the United States once you get down to how you're going to ship it back and what you're going to pay in duties to actually you know to customs to bring it in. So there's so many factors in determining this. Again, once you get big enough and your volume is big enough, those costs become incrementally smaller on a per unit basis and it becomes much more easy, easy to digest. But if you're a small brand, those things just become outrageous on a per unit basis. You know, you could be paying a 30% duty plus paying to ship something in on not that many items and you've just like blown your entire margin. So for me, choosing partners in places around the world was helpful to me for a few reasons. One, to bring my costs down. Two, to diversify my production such that if a factory I was working with couldn't handle either the volume or the kind of work I was giving them, I always had a different factory. So I was never beholden just to one. Right now I'm doing a production in Portugal, which I'm actually really enjoying. Um, I love that it's made in Europe. Um, Portugal is actually very, they've been in the garment business for a very long time and they have competitive pricing. They take a lower volume and a higher volume, both of which I give them for shorter runs and for bigger runs. They have the equipment. Um, I pay a lot in duties and in shipping. And 
fabric is not in Portugal, so I have to ship the fabric from, I'm like a logistics, you become a, you know, instead of being a fashion designer, if you're going to do this, you become a worldwide logistics manager. Um, you're shipping fabric that's made in China or in Korea or in India or in Japan around the world, either to the United States or to Portugal. And the goods are made there and then you're shipping it from Portugal to the United States and it goes to a port and you have to figure out how to get it from the port to where you are. It just becomes a, a logistical nightmare. And, you know, that's, I call myself honestly more a logistics manager than anything else because it's really about how you get, in order to make product, it's about how you take raw good, raw materials and turn them into finished product. And that is not seamless because they have to end up at your door at your warehouse and it's like a very big process to get there. So that is to say, I'm doing it now, some in Canada, some in Portugal, some in the United States, some in China, um, though I actually don't think the prices I'm getting in China are competitive at all and I don't like doing it there. Wow, that's interesting to me. We, um, a lot of companies I work with, um, we're in China, India, and Peru are kind of our three big places and the China prices, well, the India price is very competitive. Um, that's all I'll say about that. Um, I think, though, for America Made, like if that is important to you, do your best to play that up on your website or in your product. Um, I don't think necessarily that maybe we called it out as much as we could have. And I think of a brand like Nanette Lepore, for instance, which is a big contemporary brand. She does all, almost all, if not all, of her production in New York, and you know her whole thing is made in New York, and that's a bit, that's a huge value point for her, and that has been I think critical to some of her success. So I think you have to know how to play it up. I don't, I'm not, I don't think I knew how to market that correctly, and so it just wasn't relevant, unfortunately. Yeah, I'm actually really glad that you brought that up because I thought of that question while you were talking, and. Uh, the first thing I thought was, you know, you we talked earlier about how you created this avatar, right? This ideal target market customer person, and does she care about about Made in America? Um, and maybe she does, maybe she doesn't. So first, you kind of have to figure that out. But then, um, you know, that was really important to you personally. But were you even communicating that in a way to your customer that made them care or that? educated them about the pros and cons to manufacturing here versus offshore um, to really capitalize on the extra cost that that was that, that you had to output to do that and obviously there's other logistics between you know timing and minimums and stuff there's other advantages above and beyond the cost but um, were you really getting back that right no I mean one we were not communicating it properly and two, we were wondering, did our customer, does it matter to our customer? Um, did it justify the cost? Again, on a personal level, like it mattered. And maybe that's enough. As a, as a designer, you decide this is what I value and that's it, even if it's going to cost a fortune. But at some point, you might be sacrificing, you know, your, your company for your own principles. And you have to determine if that's right for you. If you know producing the United States is so important to you that you're willing to not make any money, then that's you know your prerogative. But if you want to have a margin that allows you to 
grow, you know, not only just break even, but grow, you might have to look elsewhere. You don't have, you know, maybe you don't, maybe you can negotiate really well with your factories or your costings are yeah. in such a way that, you know, it's working, but, um, but this comes back to your earlier question of knowing who your target market is and does our avatar care? I'm unfortunately, I, I'm not so sure. Yeah. Interesting points. Um, okay, we will wrap up with one final question here. Okay. All right, this last question is from Kelly, and I think this is uh, probably really relevant to a lot of people in my audience, so I'd like to get your input. Um, and the question is, what specific skills benefited you most to switch careers to become a designer? And the reason I want to ask this is because I think that this is the position a lot of people are in, right? They are not in the fashion industry or not in a career as a designer and they want to make a shift. And some of these women, you know, maybe younger, maybe in their 40s or 50s even, and they really want to go after this dream of being a designer. Um, and so, you know, what were some of the skills that you found most beneficial to make this transition? Okay, this is a little bit of a long-winded answer that I'll give because I think I have to go back a little bit. Um, I think firstly, I would encourage anyone trying to get into this business. So I got in as a, not as a fashion designer, but as an inventor. And now I create fashion, but it's with a concept behind it. There's something that powers it. There's a point of view that powers it. I'm not Karl Lagerfeld, and I probably never will be, though maybe I can dream. <laughs> um, but I'm not coming up with necessarily, you know, fa in, um, fashion for fashion's sake. And I think this is not to deter anyone from getting involved in fashion for fashion's sake, but I think if you're transitioning, if you're in a career and you want to get into fashion, unless you're really trained or you really have a distinct, you know, eye or point of view or something to say, or you're going to be on project runway, that I think instead of coming up with a fashion collection, come up with a concept, come up with something new, come up with, you know, and the, nothing is really new anymore. Everything is an iteration of something that's been developed before. So it doesn't have to necessarily be brand new, something that's never been heard about, but think of an angle on a concept. And I think that's a much easier way to get started in this industry than just saying, I want to design beautiful clothes because it's very difficult to get noticed. People are it's very difficult to get noticed if you just want to design beautiful clothes. And that leads into, I think, what, you know, what attributes you need to transition from a day job to what you would love to do, which is one, I think having something to talk about is most important because you need to build an audience. It's so crowded out there. It's so congested. There's so many websites. There's so many designers. There's so many, there's so many ideas that, having something to talk about so that you can get other people interested or listening or involved is really important. So for me, in my line of work, it was being social and talking to a lot of people. So it was a very natural progression for me also. You know, there was no, it was totally blurred between my personality and what it was I was trying to do, which is freely talking about, you know, something that I loved that I was building, which was the shirt. So if you're a natural talker, I think that's easy, right? If you are building something that you can talk about and you like to talk, that's easy because you can tell everyone about it and some people will help you. If you're not, it's a little bit of a different story. But I think finding 
what it is that you are good at and pursuing that. For instance, and I said this earlier, I was never going to be technical. It wouldn't have been a very good use of my time to learn in an exacting way how to technically build a shirt. I know how to build a shirt. You know, I've learned at this point, you know, how to do it. But you don't know how to sew. I don't know how to sew. Yeah. I legitimately don't know how to sew because I wasn't going to sew my own shirts. I was going to have other people sew it. What I knew I was good at was selling and marketing and talking about the product and getting press for it. And so I knew that's what my strengths were. And I would say, know what your strengths are and then hire or outsource the rest of it. Um, and that's still true to this day. You know, I have an amazing bookkeeper because an accountant because that's not my inclination. I'm not necessarily geared toward numbers. I'm geared toward building the product and then getting it in the hands of customers. And that's where I spend my time and energy. Um, so I hope that answered your question. Yeah, I think it did. I mean, I think it's really just kind of identifying um, what you're good at and capitalizing on that and yeah. then finding people to help you with the rest. Yeah. Um, yeah, you, I, you can't do everything. Like, no. you're never going to, I mean, you have to know virtually how to do everything, but hire for the, or, you know, as I said, not hire, but outsource the things that you know aren't necessarily your strengths because you'll be much more successful when you focus on the things that you know you're good at. Yeah. And I brought up the sewing thing just because I think that's such a barrier to entry for a lot of people, or they think it's a barrier. Um, I hear it so often. Well, I don't know how to sew. I'm like, you don't need to know how to sew. You know, get get your head wrapped around. I, this is what I do tell, I do advise people. Get your head wrapped around, like, some of the general principles and and construction techniques and like quality things that you want to keep an eye on because I think that's really important and I would you can learn that by um I mean I even do it I go out in the market and I buy something Mm -hmm. that is of a caliber quality that I want to achieve and then I kind of dissect that and then I give that to the factory and all together you know all three of us, me, the factory, and whoever made that first product, um, that helps kind of create the final product. Even if I don't know how to physically make it, um, I just kind of get myself in tune with the construction and the techniques. And you can do that by going out in the market and finding Yeah, I think right? knowing the market is so helpful. I mean, I'll sometimes just go out browsing just to see what's going on out there and what you know innovations are going on and how other companies that I think were similar to, you know, how they're constructing their shirts and what they're doing so that we can stay, you know, competitive. Um, yeah, I, I think that's such sound advice. Yeah. You don't have to know how to do everything. Just know what you know how to do. Oh, I love that. And we'll end right there on that quote. Thank you so much, Rochelle. This has been insanely fun. Um, I'm so excited so to have you fun. here. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks so much, everybody, for listening. This concludes part two of a two-part interview with Rochelle Behrens. Rochelle runs The Shirt. You can find her at the-shirt.com. I'm So Heidi. You can find me at soheidi.com. That's S-E-W-H-E-I-D-I.com. See you next time.